With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Every single day on my Twitter account, follow me at jaltature. I'm doing the adult improvement tip of the day. As an adult, I've become a chess master, professional stand-up comedian, a computer programmer, an investor, a hedge fund manager, an entrepreneur. In some cases, I've mastered some of these new fields. It's no good to just do something mindlessly over and over and over again and not get better. You get happier when you improve. New research shows that adults can improve just as easily as kids or almost as easily. I've written books about adult improvement. I have new ideas that beat out the 10,000 hour rule. And I'm doing a whole thread every single day, one tip a day for the next 100 days, adult improvement tip of the day. Find me on Twitter at Jay Altucher. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is I Will Make You a Millionaire, another episode helping someone reach their goal of making millions. like the dream wedding, they just like the extravagance of it. But also people are so curious, you know, it's like people want to see like what the centerpieces look like or what the dress, like people, they just, they, they want to see things they don't have access to. And weddings are one of those things that, you know, they also are very judgmental. So I feel like people want to see, oh, I can't believe they chose this, you know? <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. It would be great. Like yeah. a whole drama behind it. And and that's just <laughs> it. Like you, we realize from TV that, we have no idea what people love watching. Like people will watch entire shows about other people gardening. And even, even like on Twitch, I had no idea when Twitch was first started. I'm like, people want to watch other people play uh, shoot 'em up games. Like people are yep. like, and millions of people were doing this. And I'm like, I couldn't understand. Why not just play the game? Why are you watching someone play the game? And yet right. it was, people were obsessed with it. But imagine weddings, a wedding is, one of the most important things you will do in your life, you know, getting married, having a wedding. I mean, few things maybe have, you know, in religions, it's a sacrament. Yep. What, what else is more important to, to your life than a wedding? Maybe of course, the birth of a child uh, up there, maybe not with a, with a marriage, but owning your first home. Yeah. These are like major life decisions, but a wedding happens in a compressed period of time. And so you really can watch it on something like Twitch. No, it's true. But also I feel like weddings are interesting because people want to feel emotions. And when, so a big thing in wedding culture is that people will watch complete strangers, wedding videos after the fact. So they'll watch like the trailers of their wedding, the three minute highlight video, and just find themselves hysterically crying about two strangers they've never met before. So that's like a huge thing in wedding culture that I feel like if it was live and people live streamed the ceremony, strangers would be going wild over that because they want to feel that emotion. And the people also love watching love. That's huge. Yeah, that's true. Or they love watching at the altar when someone screams, uh, <laughs> No, because I know you cheated on me with my best friend and 
Yeah, I was on Quora the other day and someone was like, has anyone ever been to a wedding where someone interrupted the ceremony before and said um, that they didn't want the person to get married? And I was like, I've seen a little bit of that. I've been at weddings where people have like intercepted the wedding before it began to try to stop it. So I've seen sort of that type of thing before. It happens. You got to tell me what happened. What's the most amazing thing? I had a wedding where um, this happened multiple times where an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or current sort of boyfriend or girlfriend showed up right before the ceremony and made a scene, tried to sort of intercept it and get it canceled and made a scene. And oftentimes it's the couple still went through with it, but there was a lot of crying and awkwardness associated. But I've seen people who are not invited to the wedding show up right before the wedding and try to make a, a whole scene happen from it. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, and it's funny that someone asked that on Quora because of course, interrupting a wedding is a popular trope in movies and yep. and like look at The Graduate was uh, you know, Dustin Hoffman interrupts the wedding yeah. and and the bride leaves with him and then you see them on the back of this bus just sort of looking into space because what happens now? Like the movie's over, what are they going to do now? It's not all like bliss after that. And what was the yeah. song they played at the end of The Graduate? Uh, let me, it was a Simon and Garfunkel song. Um, oh. uh, hold on, what was the song at the end of The Graduate? Uh, the Sound of Silence. So it's a good, that's a good uh, song for that type of moment. But yeah, I think like all these things happen in movies and rom-coms, but very, like they also happen in real life. I just don't think people talk about them or people don't want to view weddings with any type of negativity. So they sort of push those stories away, but they happen for sure. Do you think weddings are on the rise or on the downturn pandemic aside, of course, because that changed things. But in general, like wedding costs have inflated probably, my guess is they've probably inflated faster than inflation. So fewer people can really afford a nice wedding. Yeah, I think even before the pandemic and now heightened by the pandemic, people are splitting things up. So they're doing a ceremony, they're doing a city hall kind of elopement, and then they're doing a party later on which I think makes sense. Like save yeah. the party for a couple of years into marriage when you know things are working, you know? It's like people are, I think, splitting up those two events to cut costs, but also to save more to be able to afford it. I think engagements are longer than they've ever been before because people, one, can't afford the wedding and two, don't feel the rush to get married so quickly. You know, um, I have a small story about this. So I was engaged once. Obviously, I did not get married to this person, but I was engaged once to um, uh, a person who literally wanted a $300,000 wedding. <laughs> like she she wanted it to be in the center of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City, which was like the most expensive place on the planet to get married. And the flowers alone, she was looking at like $60,000 in costs. And I said, listen, I have another idea. And and I thought this was a good idea. I, I said to her, how about we do a whole trip around the world and along the way, in each place we stop, we visit local charities and donate all the money that the wedding would have cost. And that would be such an exciting way to do, to start off a marriage. Yep. And it would also be a story to tell and will help people. It would be a real creative way to 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 do a marriage. And she was so upset at me. We, we were on the way to meet some of my friends, friends that she was meeting for the first time, but very close friends of mine and who, who were visiting the city. She did not talk throughout the whole dinner. She was so upset at me. 
Wow. And yeah. We, and, and I didn't end it right then. I should have right. ended it right then. <laughs> Did you fold and say, okay, fine. I'll give in to this $300,000 wedding. Oh, I always fold. But then at the last minute, I just, <laughs> I left the relationship. <laughs> so, well, I, you look, I think your plan is a lot better. I think it's more exciting. And I think also what a great test for a relationship to spend time traveling around the world. You know, it's like, you're investing in the relationship. You're also investing in cool charities. And, and I think that was an awesome idea for sure. But for to some people, that's a nightmare. For some people, that is everything they do not want when it comes to their wedding. Right, because you, you, you dream so much about it since you're a kid. Both, you know, I imagine, I, always, I don't know if this is true, I imagine women think about it more as a kid than, than little boys, but, you know, boys are thinking about sports and stuff. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of cognitive bias around having a wedding. Like your friends have weddings, so you, you're competing with them, your relatives, you, you expect this to be, you know, for, for women traditionally, like for hundreds of years, it was, it was your time when you first separate from your family. So yep. again, that's why it's a religious sacrament that, you know, just like for boys who are bar mitzvah, it's you go from boy to man. This is in a weird way, you know, you go from, you know, for women, not now, of course, but historically women went from living at home and being in one family to being in another family. So it was yeah. a big, it was the biggest thing that happened to them. No, so. it is. And I think, but I also think people put so much pressure on you to follow a straight path with the wedding. I remember when we were planning a wedding originally, all I wanted was pizza. And everyone in my life told me I couldn't have pizza, that it would be an embarrassment, that if I had pizza, people would judge me. And I would call up caterers and say, look, I don't want the steak. I don't want the fish. I want pizza. And they would judge me for that and say, look, I don't know if we could work with you. They would even say to me, are you sure you actually want pizza? And it was just this like really defeating moment where I had one request for this wedding, which was pizza. And everybody in my life, my circle try to shame me for that, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, uh, I don't know. I've had such bad experiences around weddings. Like it's, it's, it's phenomenal. Like one time I didn't go to someone's wedding. They were having a wedding in Hawaii and on July 4th. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, uh, I was going through uh, a divorce. This was like a, uh, 13 years ago or 14 years ago. And I just, who a I'm on the East Coast? Who wants to fly to New York City on a major holiday? And then B, I wanted to spend time with my children because I didn't know what was happening yeah. and I was confused and I was a little depressed. And I lost the, the the two that were married. They unfollowed me from Facebook. They blocked me everywhere. I lost friends, and then all their friends or a lot of their friends started to hate me because I guess they talked about it and. Just, I've had several experiences like that where I've lost friends over weddings. Yeah, and no, the, yeah. Yeah. It's so relatable in the pandemic though right now because, you know, in the last six months, eight months, people have suddenly started to get married again, have weddings, and friends and family are still not comfortable going. And so many people have been really stressed out because they'll tell people, look, I don't feel comfortable going to your wedding yet, or I don't feel comfortable going to a party, and they lose family, they lose friends, all because they just don't feel safe. And I think that's such a relatable situation. I wrote about this today that I think um, people need to say no more when it comes to weddings. If you're asked to be a bridesmaid, you're asked to do so many different things. You don't have to say yes to everything. And I think that's so taboo and more people don't realize that, that you can say no to so many things. If a person isn't gonna be your friend because you don't go to their wedding, 
you know, I think that friendship's probably tested at that point and probably won't last, you know? Yeah. You know, uh, in situations like that, people always say, oh, well, I guess they weren't really your friend anyway. But, you know, I'm always surprised to find out who wasn't really my friend anyway, because you like people a lot and then you realize, oh, that person wasn't really my friend. You have to kind of accept the fact that they probably weren't really my friends in the first place, but then it becomes confusing. So, so whether or not you go to a wedding, the whole thing is like rife with, uh, with just emotions and, and intensity. And which is why what you have to say, Jen, about it. And, and, you know, you sent your idealists. I've gone through them. They're amazing. We'll go over them in a little bit, but it's why it's such an interesting category. It's like, it's again, it's like buying a home. When you buy a home, you could spend a year looking at houses, then another year dealing with architects and building your home and then finally moving into it and picking out furniture for it and designing it. And a wedding's the same thing, even though it only lasts an afternoon. I think I've always had a unique perspective even before I started my business in the wedding industry, because I never was a person who liked weddings. I never planned my own wedding as a kid. I never thought about a wedding. I always was so worried about finding the right person that I never had time to dream of my dream wedding. I always say that like, I personally don't like weddings. And even six years later, I still don't. I've done this job from the perspective of weddings are bizarre. Weddings are weird. I want to support the people. It just happens to be in a wedding setting. That's why I really don't like considering myself a wedding vendor. I don't like to be in that category because I don't do anything for the wedding. I just support the people as they're falling apart, trying to get through the wedding process. You know, well, I, well, let me ask you a question. And we've discussed this a little before about different aspects of weddings and the work involved. But do you think most of the time people don't have a maid of honor, let's say, and they hire you because nobody wants to do the job, even their best friend? I think a lot of times that happens. You know, look, I'm in my 30s and a lot of my friends have been bridesmaids and maid of honor so many times that if you're getting married now at this age, a lot of people are tired. They don't want to do it or they have kids or they have a family or their work is too crazy. So sometimes people in your life don't want to show up for a major task like that. And there's no judgment around that. I mean, being someone's maid of honor is a lot of work. And sometimes your friends just don't have the time to do the work you want them to do. And I think that's okay. Yeah. Uh, it's like, I would never accept the quote unquote job of being a best man. Like I'm, I'm busy all day. You know, I'm busy all day long doing things I love to do. Right. And, and not that I would hate being, let's say, you know, I had a really good friend who asked me to be best man. I'd want to figure out how to support them and, and be good with them and help them through, through, you know, what the ups and downs of, of a wedding and relationships. But you know, the, 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 the nitty gritty of like holding a party and organizing the other groomsmen and blah, blah, blah. Like you don't want to, I always have as a rule, you don't want to do, you don't want to sacrifice the things you love to do more of what you hate. And I feel like in modern society, most people do that because they take jobs they don't really like because they need the paycheck and they have to sacrifice the things they love doing. And it's happened to many people we know. It might be happening to people who are listening to this and you don't have to do that. particularly in today's world. Yeah. But it's like, also what, at what point do you feel like a bad friend? You know, at what point do you say, okay, I'm going to turn down being a maid of honor or a best man, but then you sulk in the fact that you have such guilt that you can't even go on with what you want to do. You know, it's like, 
that's why I think weddings test everybody involved. The people getting married have their own issues, but then the people who are supporting those people, their friends also have a big inner debate of how much time they can contribute. Here's what's weird to me is you accept being a bridesmaid or a maid of honor, but you never have a conversation about what that entails, what that includes. And every single wedding is different. You might have a friend who says to you, James, I don't need you to do anything. Just show up in the tux and stand by my side. Or you might have a friend that says, James, I want you to be my best man, but here's a list of 75 things I need you to do in three months. Like none of that is ever discussed. And that to me is so weird, you know? Yeah. You always just assume, like I always used to assume, oh, you just show up and you hold the box with the ring and that, and that's all. And then you give it to them when they say I do. And that's the only thing you do. But I guess it's a lot more than that, right? It's a lot more than that. You'd be shocked, but it's also like, you know, the average person probably thinks like you do. So then how are they supposed to know any differently? And that's where the resentment comes in. That's where the friendship breaks apart is because there's these unspoken expectations. And I think that's a huge cause of drama during the wedding process. So last week we talked about a lot of different kinds of business ideas that riff off on what you've been doing for the past six years. You know, you've been a bridesmaid for hire. You wrote a book about it. You you made a living doing it. You've pitched TV shows about it. You've really pursued it. And we started thinking a little more broadly about how can you really not just make a living from this because it's hard to, but it, since it's hard to scale you as a yeah. bridesmaid for hire, how you can make literally a million dollars or more from this. For the past couple of weeks, you've been doing lists. We've been sending me these lists. And, you know, we've been talking about, you know, a newsletter, for instance, about the first year of marriage. We've been talking about some other things. But I, I want to just read this one list you sent me, which I thought was really great, just as an informative thing. 10 stats about marriages. Mm -hmm. I didn't know any of these statistics. So I didn't know that most marriages that fail will do so within the first two years. Mm -hmm. I thought most that fail would fail within, you know, when it got too long, like, you know, the seven year itch or, or after 30 years when the kids graduate. But I, mean, I didn't know that most marriages that fail, fail will do so within the first two years. Yeah, it was the first two years. And then the second, if you made it, then the second touch point is years five through eight. And I do think there's a lot, like the more I was looking into this, the more I was like, wow, the first year of marriage really does have a lot of pressure. I was telling my husband, Adam, I was like, we have to talk about how we're going to survive this first year of marriage. Cause like it can be make or break even for a couple that you think knows each other well. So that was shocking to me too. I mean, it's so amazing that with your experience dealing with so many marriages, you really know what issues come up and what, what to talk about with your husband and what to think about and, and how to, how to prophylactically handle these before they become real issues. And then I, I didn't know that the second one, couples who have disillusionment with each other, year one are more likely to get divorced later on. And I guess because it's the first time they're really experiencing like melding their lives with each other. And, and so they see a completely different person. Yep. So it's like, it reminds me, I always, I don't play tennis, but I use tennis as an example. If you switch from a two-handed backhand to a one, let's say you're a pro player and you switch from a two-handed backhand to a one-handed backhand. It's a new game now. You have to learn a new game and it's also called tennis, but it's a, you have to start from scratch learning something new about something you love so much. And the same thing happens in that first year of marriage. You've switched from a two-handed backhand to a one-handed backhand and you have to know how to play all over again. And yeah. that's yeah. what happens. But it's a different dynamic because I feel like when you're dating, 
all you're thinking about is, are we going to make it? Are we going to make it? Then you get engaged and you're like, okay, now are we going to get it to the wedding? Are we going to, how's this going to look? And that's what consumes your mind. Then you're married and it's like, well, what's next? What do I have to worry about or think about? And I think that's when the, the, maybe the sunglasses come off and you see the person and you're like, wow, I, I thought I knew you, but I knew a version of you. You know, I, I think there's something that definitely changes when you're no longer worried about, am I going to get married to this person? Is this going to work out? And I think that leads to your third statistic about marriage, which is the top five, all of these things, you, you list the top five reasons for divorce and they're all related to, these wouldn't be things necessarily that couples would deal with before getting married, um, but they become huge issues after getting married. So number one is finances, then infidelity, then arguing, lack of intimacy, substance abuse. Yeah. Now I, you, you can argue that, um, you know, infidelity and arguing are reasons why relationships fail. But like you said, you're no longer on best behavior. You're now married. Right. So, so now like, you know, your truer self starts to, to come out. You don't have to hold back. And yeah. so I guess that happens. And then number four, 37% of married millennials keep their finances separate from their partners compared with just 27% of boomers. And I wonder why that is. So, so younger people, so older people, you're saying, combine their finances and are more comfortable with that. But millennials, maybe they're more wary of divorce or more of them have their parents divorced so they keep their money separate. Yeah, I, I'm keeping my money separate. I've said that from day one is I, I want to be in charge of my money, our money, and we're not rushing to combine things where I know my, you know, my parents, other people's parents, they get married, they have joint bank accounts, joint credit cards. I think it's a little bit different. Yeah, and uh, it probably makes, I hate to say this, uh, but it probably makes divorce easier. Because in many states, you know, what's in your bank account, you, you know, the only assets that get divided are what are the things that are jointly owned. Like what, yeah. if you're, if both names are on the deed of a house, if both names are on a bank account, those are divided. But like in New York state, for instance, if it's money's in your bank account, that's your money. Like it's not cut in half. I mean, if you're married for 20 years and there's some lifestyle stuff, but right. you know, uh, before that, then it's just what's yours is yours. Uh, what, what you bring into the marriage, you keep unless you combine it into one bank account. Uh, and then you say uh, married adults are more likely than cohabiting adults to say that things are going very well in their relationships. And I think probably that's true because of cognitive bias. Like you don't want to get married and then say, ah, it's not really going that well <laughs> because <laughs> you just you just made the, one of the biggest decisions of your life that, that your brain is telling you you couldn't possibly have made a bad decision. So I think there's a cognitive bias to say things are going well, even if things are worse than you might actually think things are going well when they actually might be worse than when you were just in a relationship. Yeah. You also don't want people to question you. I know, you know, we've been married for, I don't know, three months and my whole mood about it is like, whatever life goes on. You know, we don't even talk about being married. People hear me say that and they're like, are you happy? Are things okay? I'm like, yeah, it's just being married. Isn't the number one thing that defines me. So I feel like people say like, everything's going great. We're, we're so happy because they just don't want people to question anything. You know, I, I'll tell you like one thing that changed for me the first time I was married and that ended in divorce. One thing that changed for me, like right away, like, like literally the day after I got married was that I started thinking much more long-term about career and success because now I've just, I had just committed to spend yeah. not, not a month with someone or a year with someone, but a lifetime with someone. And so I, I had, I had to change certain patterns in my life that weren't kind of long-term thinking. So that, that changed for me. That might be a, a male thing. It might be now both sides. I don't know. 
but uh, uh, but this number, this next statistic is very interesting for a lot of reasons. You say a 15-year-long study found that a person's happiness level before marriage was the best predictor of happiness after marriage. In other words, marriage won't automatically make one happy. And I think that's interesting because that's true for everything. Like we all have this baseline of happiness. And if things go really good or really bad, uh, you might be super unhappy or super happy for a short amount of time, but eventually you return to your baseline of happiness. And very few things change the, that baseline. One thing that is known to change the baseline is if you regularly practice gratitude. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know, like you could, you could like lose a leg and you could be very unhappy for a while, but then eventually you'll get back to your baseline of happiness. And so I think that's, that statistic is related to that other fact about the brain. Um, number seven, this one's interesting. People who have multiple cohabiting relationships before marriage are more likely to experience marital conflict. And I've always suspected that, but tell me why that is, you think. I don't, I don't know. I, I was, I was honestly shocked by that one the most, I think, because I always thought maybe if you had a lot of relationships in the past where you live with people that maybe you understood how to combine your life with the person. So I was shocked by that. I wonder, maybe it's because it's like supply and demand. If you have a large supply of living with somebody, then maybe you value it less, you, the, yeah. you, you know, so the price goes down, the more the supply there is of something, the price goes down. So maybe you, you, it's not as important to you that now you've moved, you know, you're living with your wife right, or, or husband or whatever. Um, and then in number eight here in year one, this, I didn't know in year one, men are more likely to cheat on their wives during marriage, leading to a spike in infidelity divorces. Why do you think year one and why men? Oh man, I, I don't know. I feel like maybe, well, you know, one of, I think maybe in year one, lack of intimacy happens or things change, maybe something in their brain in, in brains change where they think, wow, I'm stuck in this. So that maybe makes people rebel. I don't know. And I don't know why it was, a, it's a men thing, but I do think um, that one was really interesting to me as well. Well, and, and a lot of this discussion almost sounds like borderline sexist, but the reality yeah. is men and women are different. Like women with their friends, they don't, I, unless you watch sex in the city or something. And I don't know this, you could tell me, I don't know if women every day talk with their female friends about how great sex is or how their sex life is going. Right. And you know, men are more likely to talk about that. Like that's a metric for men to judge other men. And what do you know, why does a, why does a woman buy a very expensive purse, whereas, you know, and again, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing. So that's almost a sex. That maybe is a sexist statement, but I, when I go into a, a, a woman's fat, there's, first of all, there are more high-end fashion stores for women than men. Second, I think, you know, women will spend more on items that men don't care about. Like men don't care what the purse looks like, but women care what their friends' purses look like. So I think they're more kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're judging each other by different metrics. So men yeah. want to make sure they still have that, you know, sexual attractiveness and women want to, it to be seen that, Hey, their status has, has gone up. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. I, I bet you psychologically, or even just studying brain chemistry, I think that there is something to say about the moment you get married, 
your brain chemistry might change or something goes off in your head where you panic. Maybe, maybe there's panic of this is it. This is all, this is, you know, I'm stuck or something like that, that makes people rebel. I really think that that could be something because again, you don't really know what it's going to feel like. And so you sign on that dotted line and you're officially married. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think, um, I think infidelity is more part of male culture. Like I've never been to a bachelor party in my life, but you know, there's, there's, you know, there's that commercial about Las Vegas. What happens in Las Vegas stays in Las Vegas. And I think that line refers to bachelor parties because whenever I hear about men having a bachelor party in Las Vegas, it always involves prostitutes by the end. Yep. And yep. Uh, so I just think it's, and I have never heard that about a, uh, whatever it's called, a bachelor party. Maybe it does happen, um, but I've never really heard that much about that where it's a common thing in male culture, and which is horrible. And, you know, I think that is, you know, it's just, I don't know, life, life's pretty horrible in general and you just have to get through it. But, uh, I also can't believe you've never been to a bachelor party before. <laughs> I've been to very few weddings, actually. I've been to my weddings, which were yeah. all, which were all court of things, except the first one was court and then a dinner. And, um, I've been to, I've lost a lot of friends because I've never accepted I I, I went to my business partner's wedding. who's a very close friend. Uh, I went to his wedding and maybe that's it. Maybe that's the only other out, outside of, and I have, I don't have a big family, so I haven't really yeah. been to family weddings. So, uh, yeah, I just haven't really been to many weddings. So I haven't been to any, I didn't even have a bachelor party for my own wedding. So, um, number nine, the actual percentage of marriages that end in divorce in the United States varies between 40% and 50%. I've always heard that it's around 50%, but I've never could actually find the statistics. Like, do you think that's true? You know, a lot, it's, it's so conflicting what you read because some, some reports are like, it's going down, it's getting closer to 40%. You know, marriages aren't ending as much as they used to. I think it's probably, I think it does hover between 40 and 50%. It's just a matter of, you know, early divorce or later divorce. I think that that's probably where the statistic changes the most. Well, and I've skewed it upwards. 66% of my marriages have ended in divorce. So <laughs> that's always problematic. But, uh, and then um, number 10 here, the national average marriage length is just over eight years, which does suggest that a lot of marriages end in divorce because if, like, let's say if the average age of marriage is 25, 26, 27, uh, it's not like everyone's dying at the age of 35. Like, you know, people live longer lives. So it must be a lot of divorces. And I read in, I read that in New York's in New York, it's 12 years is the average. And that's like, that's a, that's a, a, a longer average than most. And I was thinking that's interesting. I wonder why New York has a longer average, but. Well, I, I, and again, I'm kind of cynical in these responses. So but I'll give, I'll give one non-cynical response and one cynical one in New York city. People get married uh, at a later age because yeah. New York city is probably the city most in the world. That's where everybody's focused on career um, because it's expensive to live there. And in New York City, I think I think there are a lot of implicit agreements in New York City about who has the looks, who has the money, who has the status, who is more sexual versus not sexual. And I think there's a lot of implicit agreements that happen in the dating process uh, in New York City. Like there's 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 probably more matchmakers in New York City than any other city because people are very particular in their requirements and, and like annoyingly so, I think. And, and that could lead to a more of these loveless marriages that we spoke about in the, in our first meeting. And, you, you know, but it also could lead to 
more, it's almost like arranged marriages in New York City. And, and I'm not saying this generally, I'm just saying there's more of that in New York City. Yeah. Before Adam and I got married, I interviewed for an article, a, a divorce lawyer who works with very wealthy clients. And she said, you know, a lot of them come before the marriage to make that prenup and it's an agreement. It's, you know, and, and she's like, it's not like the romance is killed. It's just what people do. And I found that to be so interesting, just picking the brain of a divorce lawyer who works with wealthy people in New York City, because, you know, a lot of people don't talk about prenums and, and agreements before you get married, but maybe they should. Maybe they should. Yeah. I mean, I've never done a prenup, but mostly because if you don't, at least in New York State, if you don't, first of all, I don't really think that um, strategically about it, but it just so happens if you if you don't. Co cohabitate your money. If you don't mix your money, then you're a little safer with or without a prenup if you happen to get a divorce. And by the way, people don't always get divorced because one person cheats or one person argues. Sometimes there are life change, serious life changes that happen where divorce oddly becomes necessary. Like if there's, um, you know, mental illness that could be violent or if, if kids are, if, if people bring kids into a marriage and there's potential for danger, you know, there's a lot of other, there's a lot of other reasons. And, and so it's not, it's not always a bad thing. If someone, if two people have gotten divorced, sometimes it's the right thing. But, um, I mean, most of the time, probably it's the right thing, but you know, regardless of the reason, but, uh, I, I, people sometimes hear, oh, you've been divorced twice. They think that uh, they, they make fun of it, but sometimes there's legit reasons why you need to move on or you want to move on. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, that was a that was a great list of statistics because I didn't know any of those. And I think always the challenge with an idealist is to challenge yourself by thinking like like I could also say, you know, there's probably statistics about marriage that are real easy. But these were all kind of challenging ones that I didn't know most of these or at least I didn't know specifically. You know, I, I knew people I knew a lot of people got divorced. I didn't know whether it was 40 or 50 percent or 10 percent. I've seen all the numbers and I didn't know the top five reasons for divorce. Uh, do you think, do you think men in general, you say over the first year, men have infidelity more than women. What about the lifetime of a marriage? What do you think the percentages are? I probably think maybe they're pretty similar to a lot of these. You know, I think that a lot of these are for, you know, early marriage, new marriage, but I think maybe the longer you're with the person, more things change, more things happen, and maybe more infidelity happens, maybe more, you know, of these reasons people get divorced, substance abuse happens, things like that. So I think the longer you're with somebody, the more complicated it gets, and maybe the more things like this do happen. Yeah. Yeah. You always hope that in the long run, it just evolves into a nice sort of love. That's like the image of it. Like, oh, you're old now and you're just taking a, a walk by the pond every day. That's how I, I picture like marriage and old age, but who knows? Yeah. I don't think, you know, I think, and I'm guessing here, I think the truth about marriage is it starts off, you're so in love, right? But then I think it becomes more of a partnership, a friendship, getting through the years together. Like, I feel like it becomes less of like a, a love thing and maybe more of a, we work well together. I don't want to call it like a business type of relationship. I know I'm making it sound really bad, but I do think like people who, who get married for fiery love, there's so much more to the relationship. And I think that comes out in the long term when you're with the person. Mm. I think if you make it to 87 after all of the stuff you've gone through, yeah, you're holding hands, you're walking slowly toward the sunset, but I think everything in between maybe wasn't so rosy for most people, I'm guessing.
whenever I do stand-up comedy, one of the, you know, it's kind of an easy thing to do crowd work. I always get to the event earlier. Like, let's say it's a lineup of comedians. I always look at all the couples as they're coming in and seated and how they interact with each other. And then when I go on stage, I'll try to predict out of all the couples in the audience, let's say there's a hundred people in the audience, out of all the couples, I'll point to the ones I think have just started dating. And usually I'm correct because if you just started dating, like somebody's leg might be on the other person's leg. Like they're usually touching. And, yeah. for, and I've noticed for every year a couple's been married, they're sitting that many inches apart from each other. So if they've been married for 10 years, they'll sit, be sitting approximately 10 inches apart from each other. And so I could always predict who's been married the longest. And I'm usually correct about that. And then I'll ask, you know, what's the secret to being married for 30 years like you guys have? And um, they'll usually say something like, you know, well, it's 90-10. I have to give 90%, she gives 10%. And then, but then they'll say, but it's also the reverse. <laughs> Mm. So, so that's an interesting thing. And it's to your point of there's, there's a lot to it. It's not just kind of attraction and, and lust and all fire. It's really a lot of giving and compromising and so on. Yeah. I think it's not the glamorous stuff. It's the ugly stuff. It's the challenging stuff that nobody talks about. And also I think no one wants to talk about it during the first year of marriage, but it's occurring. You know, the more I researched, the more I didn't find so much about people who are honest about the first year of marriage, the more I found like the first year of marriage is supposed to be great. You're learning, you're growing. It's like, no, you're talking about finances. You're talking about all these things and nobody's really talking about it honestly. And that's a problem. Yeah, I agree which is why probably couples therapy is probably good early on. But I've been in my two marriages that ended in divorce. We, of course, went to couples therapy and I found it to be not so good. But it's mostly because in any job, 98% of the people are really bad at what they do. Yeah. So it's like 98% of lawyers say, or doctors are bad at what they do. And 1% or 2% are good. But with therapy, because it's such a taboo thing to kind of really... It's a lot more ta it's a lot more taboo to say hey i'm going to my therapist today, as opposed to hey i'm going to the dentist today people don't really talk about which therapists are good and which therapists are bad i think oftentimes you go to a couple's therapist and it's with a bad therapist it does more harm than good yeah, but and also it's maybe you go to the right therapist but the relationship's not worth saving you know i think that's also something to say is like maybe not every relationship is meant to last forever and i don't think people really talk about that either when they first get married because that's sort of gloomy but it's true yeah, that's a good point. Like I have a friend, I haven't, I haven't talked, he made this Facebook post the other day and I haven't talked to him since then, but I'm curious to ask him. He just announced that he's polyamorous, meaning mm -hmm. he, you know, he doesn't really believe that couples need to be faithful to each other. And he has, he, he seeks out other sexual relationships. And I realize I've, I haven't seen him in a few years and I realize I don't know, I haven't seen many papers on his Facebook page with his wife, although she still likes his posts. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know if they're still married, if they're not married. It's a, I wonder if they both knew beforehand that he was going to lean this way. And it's just, you know, you learn, you change and you learn things about yourself and you learn things about the other person. So you're right. Not every marriage needs to last forever. It's not, you know, even though we mentioned earlier, it's like a sacrament in religions. It doesn't have to be a rule that marriages last forever. We're not in tribes now where, where we need each other to take care of our kids or the kids will die and so on. Right. I think we're just so conditioned to believe that it, marriage is supposed to be happy and good and you're supposed to sacrifice things for the other person and you're supposed to do what you can do to make them happy. But nobody really talks about the actual truth to all of it or some of these really important topics. They just talk about these high level cliches that 
I think drive people to end marriage faster because they're just, they're forced to believe it's supposed to be a certain way. And then when it's not that way, they get confused. So I think there's just a lot of problems with how people think they have to live their life because of what they've been told. I agree. I, when I was a kid, I was praying for my parents to get a divorce because I was reading all these young adult novels about kids of divorce. Cause it was start, starting to be a bigger thing in the seventies. Uh, I would always read about, Oh, they get two allowances now and they live in two homes and they go to a different place for the summer. It's much more exciting. And I don't know, I always thought it was a better life, but you know, of course I know people are affected negatively by marriage and, and when their parents find other partners and so on. But I wanted to ask you one question too, about like, you know, we've been talking about things relating to the wedding industry and I want to go over your list and, and, you know, the ideas that we've already started discussing, but you've developed also a, an entirely other set of skills during this process. You know, you, first off, you've learned a lot of data, uh, about marriage and what people like and what people don't like. And, and you've learned a lot about communicating. So you have to fit into a circle of friends that are very close with each other. And suddenly there's you, this hired stranger who's basically hired to be a friend for a weekend or, or maybe more than a weekend. And, you know, you probably also know a lot about decision-making and how one should make decisions. Like for instance, when two people get married, where do they live? Where do they move to? Do they move to other cities? Do they stay in the city they were in? Do they start thinking, oh, they've been living in New York, but now they're married and thinking of having kids. Now they move to a suburb of Dallas because it's cheaper there. and There's a good school system. Like, what other knowledge do you have from this? If anything, I'm, I'm making stuff up like the Dallas thing, but could it be that, you know, there's some other interesting data that's outside the realm of marriage that comes out of this? I think what happens when people after they right after they get engaged is they go into decision overload where they're forced to make a ton of decisions about the wedding. And they realize sometimes that they're not good decision makers and that carries over to after the marriage as well. But you know, I think people, again, live their life with such a checklist as, okay, let's get, a lot of people say this, let's get through the wedding and then we'll make these other decisions. So they get legally married and then they have this whole pile of big decisions to make, such as where to live. And then how they make that decision is one of maybe for some couples, one of the first big decisions they have to make about their lives. And that tears people apart. You know, you see that all the time. People say, well, you know, I always wanted to move back home to my childhood town where my parents live and the other person doesn't want to, but they sacrifice it and move. And then that's the decline of the marriage because they're not happy. And that's when the resentment settles in. So I personally really think that a lot of the big decisions couples make within the first year or two of marriage sets a huge tone for how they feel about each other. I agree. I think that Maybe that's why so many divorces or infidelity happens in that first year. You know, maybe they realize, oh my gosh, I married the wrong person and they try to, Yeah. I don't, I don't know. There's, there's so many different factors. It's hard to say, but that's why you're, you're thinking of doing this newsletter on first year of marriage. And let, let's, let's talk about some of these lists you've made. And well, first off, how's it going? Like, how's the week been? I found myself to be more energized than ever. You know, I had a list of the things you asked me to do, but then I just couldn't stop doing things. So I did so many lists. I created the first draft of the newsletter, which didn't take me much time, but I was so proud of it. I saw it. I, I, I read number one. Yeah. I, I just was like so excited to do it and proud of it. And I, I sat Adam down and I read it all to him and he was like, when did you do all of this. And I was like, I just can't stop doing it because I felt so passionate about it. And 
yeah, I, I just, ha- I had so much fun. I had fun doing all of this. So that was the week. That's great. So, so, and that's what I mean. Like, you know, you're finding sometimes people have something that they love doing, but sometimes people find new things that they love doing. So yeah. you've been doing the bridesmaid for hire for six years, but that's a lot of weddings and weddings are sometimes good, but sometimes not so fun. And, but, but you're also a writer, you're an entertainer, you're a creator, and you've had a chance now to do that. And you've always loved doing it. And now you have a chance to do it more. And hopefully, you know, the goal is you're going to monetize it. And that's what we're talking about and monetize it to a great extent because it's, you know, we've been brainstorming ideas that are more scalable. You even made a list of the competition, but how was Quora? I know you've been answering questions on Quora. What's your name on Quora? Is it Jen Glantz? Yeah, it should be Jen Glantz. And then I, yeah, it's Jen Glantz. And I think I put in my bio, um, that I'm a bridesmaid for hire. And I started, um, my own group that's called first year of marriage. I didn't do anything with it yet, but I have like a group that's called first year of marriage that I could start to post questions in and things like that. But I sort of went through and answered some um, bridesmaid questions, wedding questions. I got some followers from it. I woke up this morning with a lot of notifications from people who were upvoting my comments, people who were asking me to answer questions. And I probably spent less than 30 minutes doing this yesterday. And I already got followers, not a lot, but you know, for the time I spent, it was so awesome. Plus as a writer, I enjoyed giving my advice. So it was, it was fun. I had a blast. I only spent 30 minutes, but I saw results. Wow. That's great. As I'm, I'm looking at it right now, uh, let me see. Uh, I'm just reading a question at random. I haven't read the whole question. When I get married, can my boyfriend and I tell his best man, he can't bring his girlfriend as a plus one. She is constantly rude to us. And I don't think it'd be fair to, to, to have to have her there. That's a good question, actually. Uh, yeah. So let's see, you could, you answered, you could do whatever you want. It's your party that you are paying for, but think through some questions. Is this a bigger issue that can get resolved before the wedding? Will this cause drama between the best man and you plus your partner? Is there another way to approach this situation? That's a, that's a good answer because you don't want to ruin his experience. either. the, the husband, your husband's experience. And this might be one of those, uh, uh, things. Yeah, I think it was hard for me to give direct advice, but it was more because I don't know the full situation. But instead, I thought, you know what, I'll give this person some questions to think about. But I had fun brainstorming what I would even say back. You know, it was to me, this was so fun because I feel like I don't have a lot of friends in real life. I have a lot of internet friends. And this was a way of me making more internet friends. And I really liked that. I, I got a kick out of it. Yeah, you have like Helen Labosco is like telling you all her her issues here <laughs> in the comments. Um and here's one. Oh, this is a great question. What is it like when bridesmaids let you down? And you say, talk to the person like they're your friend, which they are, and not just a bridesmaid. People let people down. That's life. But find out what's going on with them and get perspective before you jump in and assume things. And that's that's really great advice because, like, let's say you go to work and uh, your boss is a little bit more irritable one particular morning. You might, I think people jump to the conclusion that it's about them but something else could be going on in their life and you just have no idea. So you never really know the full set of stories involved in a situation. And, you know, it's important to not just take everything personally like this and, 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 and make it and can, and you can't really control every part of your life, even, a, even a wedding, which you do pay for and you do have a lot more control over than like a job situation. You can, still can't control everything. 
you also don't know the expectations. Like people, there's no communication when you're a bridesmaid. So your friend might not know what is expected of them. Plus they don't know that they're letting you down. It's such a loaded situation that just needs to be brought to life. I feel like I'm at an age in my life where if something's bothering me or if I'm not sure if a person's mad at me, I'm enjoying just calling them up and saying, hey, are we okay? What's going on? You know, I feel like- We, we sweep so many things underneath our life, but I'm at a point in my life where I will pick up the phone and say, I feel like something is off between us. What is going on? And nine out of 10 times, it's nothing to do with us. That person's experiencing something that they didn't know how to come to me and tell me. So yeah, that was my, that was my advice to this person. So these are great. So you've answered a bunch of questions. I think you posted one question. I have only one suggestion, which is I think people get more views and shares and upvotes the longer the answer. So like you could think of these questions as prompts for a 10 idealist. What is it like when bridesmaids let you down? Maybe you could have written 10 mini stories that you've seen over your hundreds of weddings that you've been bridesmaid for hire at. I'm sure you've seen more than 10 occurrences when bridesmaids let the bride down. And even in small ways or big ways, who knows? I think having an answer list telling those 10 stories and what the good solutions would have been or could have been, that would have been an all-star answer that people would have shared with their friends who were getting married and you would have had a lot more upvotes on it. Even though your answer was great, a lot of times I write long answers on Quora and people sometimes ask me, why do you write such long answers? I couldn't read the whole thing. Well, learn to read a little better if you're interested (laughs) in it. It's not my problem you didn't read the whole thing. And I get a lot of upvotes. I've noticed the longer longer my answer is, the more upvotes I get. And so it has nothing to do with the writing. It's just- People, there's a lot of value that you have. And so you might as well just put all the value in each question, like throw everything you've got into it. Yeah, I I, I agree. I felt like I rushed through my answers when I could have spent so much longer on, on some of these questions. And I think people would appreciate that, right? They're, they see my bio that I do have some credibility in this space. And I think that they'd appreciate more specific examples too. Right. And then what will happen is your answers will start to rise up. If there's like a 500 answers for a question, your answers will start to rise up to the top. And people will read them because it's like, oh, it's Jen Glance again. I know she provides a lot of value and a lot of content. I really want to read what she has to say. And maybe someone who's getting married says, oh, yeah, I always want to see what Jen Glance has to say about weddings or marriage or whatever, because you have a lot of content because you offer a lot. So also, I used to really study Quora. Like my first year on Quora, I also had smaller answers and they weren't getting as many views. By the way, if you look up like Jordan Peterson in 2012, like six years before anyone knew who he was, he was posting on Quora and he would just post these short answers, not like his writing now. And he didn't really have any followers. It wasn't like, again, not like how he is now. So it seems like there's some correlation between uh, longer answers and more value and more upvotes and more shares. You know, you get a lot of upvotes when people share it more and because then it exposes it to their followers. But yeah, this is a, a great start and you offer so much value here. And plus this will give you ideas for, newsletters. Like any one of these questions, by the way, could be an issue of a newsletter. Yep. Yeah. No, I I thought that too. Do you think I should stick with answering first year of marriage questions or should I just expand it to first year of marriage questions, wedding questions, bridesmaid questions, be more general? Yeah, definitely be as as general as you want to be. Like, and by the way, you could answer questions about chemistry if you want. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, but you know, you're interested in this topic. So just a- answer whatever questions inspire answers in you as opposed to like being specifically about first year of marriage or weddings or bridesmaids or whatever. Okay. 
Good to yeah. know. It could be about relationships. It could be about, it could be the sort of questions for divorce lawyers, but you happen to know a lot about the law probably given what yeah. you've seen. Yeah. You know, when I was in the hedge fund business, I, I'm not a lawyer, but I would often give talks and presentations at law firms because I knew a lot about the law for what I did. And yeah. I knew more than most lawyers. I would lecture the lawyers on the law. There's no such thing as degrees making you credible. Degrees can get you a job, like a law degree can get you a job, but anyone can know as much about a lawyer in a specific area of law because no lawyer knows, you know, a lawyer might specialize in, you know, the law involving low income housing in New York City, but not know any other part of the law. So like if you were to ask them about divorce law, you probably know more about it than them. There's a great podcast called Hardcore History by this guy, Dan Carlin. It's one of the most popular podcasts in the world, and it only comes out once every few months. And he tells these really detailed, insane stories about history, particularly like obscure wars in ancient history. And he was always like lecturing his mom and his family about these wars at the dinner table. And his mom finally said, why don't you start a podcast or write a book? Like, you know so much about history. And he's like, yeah, mom, but I don't have a PhD in history. And now, still without the PhD in history, he's probably the most well-known historian on the planet simply because he has millions of followers of his podcast. I love hearing stories like that because I think it allows people to realize like credibility is so subjective. Like it doesn't, you don't need to go to school for a topic. You don't need to, you know, have all these degrees. I think it could be something that you're just interested in. I mean, I don't have a wedding background before I was a bridesmaid for hire. I never cared about weddings. You know, it's like, I think sometimes you fall into the things you love and that makes you an expert. Like Jay, who's the audio engineer and uh, Jay's listening to this podcast because he's audio engineering it. I didn't know if he had a college degree until we were working together for about three years. And by the way, now he's the producer of the whole podcast. Like he finds the guests, he books the guests, he arranges everything. He makes excuses for me when I don't show up at the last minute. And uh, he's he's great. What's important now, and I think this was always important, but, but now people are realizing for sure this is important, is that skills are better than credentials. Like skill, if, if you can do the job, you get the job. And if you have a degree, but you don't have the skills, you don't get the job. There's no time to waste anymore. Like people have to hire people with skills Not there's no six year training program anymore, just because you have a degree from an Ivy league school or whatever. Let's go through this. So you, so you did Quora great list. I like, uh, the 20 name ideas. You know, some of the ideas are basic, like, Oh, the newsletter is called the first year of marriage or the first years of marriage. Or here's another one. Oops. I got married. Four is, oh, I like this one. Four is, I do, now what? Uh, and you could say, and then you could have a subtitle, like a newsletter about marriage. Uh, and so then that actually might be good because it's clear the I do, now what implies, oh, we just got married. So it's the first year of marriage. And the subtitle, which is a newsletter about marriage, means it could be about any topic. It could even be about 30 years later. But I, I like I like all these, marriage, WTF, that's pretty funny. 99 newlywed problems. That's good. It could also be called 99 marriage problems, newlywed news. That might be a good one. I think ultimately it doesn't matter that much because what's really going to matter is that in every issue, what I try to do in an article is give multiple entries into the article, multiple reasons for someone to like it. So maybe they like it because of a story I told in it. Maybe they like it because of, uh, of some obscure facts 
that nobody knows that I research and I include in it. Maybe they like it because, um, uh, you know, maybe there has good advice or, or there's something funny in it, or maybe I have a really good quote in it. So I think really hard about what are going to be the quotes that stand out, that resonate as, as not just a paragraph, but a quote that people could use. And so you want to give people many different reasons why they might share an article slash newsletter. Like they might share this with a friend. Oh, you got to read the story this person tells. This is the wisest thing I've ever read about weddings because of some quote you had in there. Or it might be like they share it because this is the weirdest thing I've ever read. I can't believe I read this. So you give people multiple reasons to not not like it. Yeah, that makes sense. I think what I was so hung up on and I couldn't stop thinking about this was do I gear it toward the first year of marriage or is that too limiting? Do I gear it toward the first years of marriage instead? I think it's, I think the first years or any years, like that's why I like, I do now what a newsletter about marriage implies both. Okay. I'm not saying choose that title. Just, I like the fact that it kind of implies both sides of that question, because ultimately I think you want it to be more general than the first year of marriage. And I yeah. had this problem too. When I first started writing in the style that I currently write in. And I started in 2010 writing about basically my vulnerabilities, times when I failed, times that, you know, at least at that moment, people were embarrassed to admit when they, particularly in the finance business, people were embarrassed to admit when they, times they had gone broke or relationships that had failed or things that they had done maybe in the past when they were younger that weren't always, you know, you know, you would want to read in the front page of the New York times because it would be embarrassing or shameful or whatever. And so I was very vulnerable and some people criticize that, but in, in general, I found that vulnerability bought me freedom and freedom from having to constrain myself to one specific style, or I always have to be perfect, or I always have to know what I'm talking about, which everybody else was doing. But then I got worried am I just writing too much about my past? What happens when I run out of my own past stories? And what ended up happening was, is that my newsletter sort of caught up to the present. And so now I write about many different topics as opposed to just my failures. And I think that's what will happen here is that you'll find yourself getting all sorts of comments and feedback and you'll answer questions and you'll be writing about many different topics. Like people ask me the most obscure things sometimes when I have Q and A's, they would have no idea if I know these things or not, but because you open yourself up to the general, you, you get a lot more opportunity. I'm glad you're saying that because I was so hung up on, if I just do the first year of marriage, what happens if people are toward the end of that? Or what happens if I'm in my eighth year of marriage and I'm still doing this, you know? So I, I never thought about keeping it more general, but I do think that would, that, that makes sense. And I think, do you think it would make sense to say like, it's, it mainly focuses on the new marriage, but it can be applicable at any time? Or do I not even have to say anything about new marriage? I don't think you have to say that. I think, I think um, if the subtitle is a, a newsletter about marriage and other things even, I don't know, like you can make it as general as possible. Like you're in the lane of marriage and, and more specifically in the lane of first year of marriage and even more specifically in the lane of weddings slash first year of marriage. But I think you could go, you don't have to be in one lane. You could go as broad as possible. And you okay. could say, hey, this has been a busy week because my marriage had this issue and we went to couples therapy and here's an exact transcript of the conversation we had with our couples therapist. People would share that. That would blow my mind reading something like that. 
not that you have to do that one, but thinking of things like like that is very interesting. Um, like like thinking really out of the box on the topics. I never thought about that. I love that. Yeah. So there's all sorts of things like that that you could do. Okay, and you have you have the tagline ideas, eleven tagline ideas, uh, problems people have in their first year of marriage, first come love, then comes marriage, then comes, boom, that's a good one. And I th I think also though, just a newsletter about marriage. If you have like a creative yeah. title, you could just say a newsletter about marriage. And then, by the way, some of these taglines could be titles of of mm -hmm. newsletters. So I always like to think. When I write an article, I always like to think, well, first off, most books that I read should be articles and most articles I read should be sentences. <laughs> so I always like to, if, if I really do think that I try to, I try to make an article as dense with quality as a book is, because a lot of times we, you and I both know, uh, publishers want 75,000 words, and maybe you only have 30,000 words to say about something, but you have to figure out how to stretch it out. Like it's a drag to write a book in many cases. So, you know, taking that example, like, so, like, yeah, one of your taglines is solve the 1,001 problems that happened during the first year of marriage. Well, that could be a single newsletter, all 1,001 problems. <laughs> it's almost an interesting exercise to think of a book you could write, but turn it into an article and, and, and with the same quality. And then could you even publish that if you wanted as a small ebook on Amazon just for yeah. fun to see what happens? Yeah, you could do whatever you want. I think that's, that's what I'm loving about our conversations is it's giving me freedom to just experiment and try all these things without any pressure. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? <laughs> Yes, I definitely gonna use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. One time I wrote an article actually, and you know the site Thought Catalog? I don't know if it's as popular as it once was. They published Um, my first book many years ago. Oh yeah, so they published 
a book of mine, which they just took an article of mine and turned it into a book. And you could really do whatever you want. I mean, my listeners know some of my stories on this, but I even took once the book 50 Shades of Grey and I hired someone to, maybe I told you the story, but I hired someone to uh, put a synonym in for every word and I published my own version of 50 Shades of Grey and I uploaded it to Amazon just for the heck of it. It's empowering to me because I told you I felt held back by the publishing world because of my track record with my last book that I stopped thinking of writing. And I, I think hearing you say this again and again has made me just feel more inspired to take these experiments without the pressure of even success just to see what works. Here's another idea. Let's say your next 10 weddings allow you to videotape or or they allow you to take the wedding video and use it for your own purposes. You could up, you know how you can upload to Amazon to self-publish a book? You could actually upload an entire TV series to Amazon if you want. You could self-publish a TV series. So what if you had a TV series called Weddings where you just literally uploaded season one is 10 episodes and it's 10 different weddings that you were the bridesmaid for and it's just the wedding video. I love this idea because I feel like all I've ever wanted was a TV show. So what if I even just made my own bridesmaid for hire TV show, you know, yeah. even, even answering like the most common questions I get and publish it on Amazon just as a way of like, I think it's more for me of just doing the things I actually want to do without waiting for someone to give me the opportunity kind of thing too. So, so this one guy I know, um, he did a documentary about me and my book, choose yourself. And he did it in 2018, 2019. He put a lot of work into it. And then the pandemic happened and he didn't know what to do with it. And so I suggested this to him, just upload it to Amazon. And suddenly when I was doing comedy, you know, the MC always needs to introduce you somehow. And they would start saying, and he has his own TV show on Amazon. Now, nobody knows if Amazon Prime produced it or if it was an NBC show, they just know it's odd that someone has a TV show on Amazon. It must be a big deal. And it was a big deal. And a lot of people watched it but I literally self-published a TV series and now we're going to put it on YouTube as well. But it was interesting for Amazon because it's in, in a TV format. It's like 26 minutes an episode. And you know, it's, it's, it's not like a, it doesn't feel like a YouTube video, but now we're going to put it on YouTube just to expand the audience. So every, everything is possible. It's so funny because I watched the show and I would have no idea. I would have thought Amazon paid you to do the show. Yeah, like people that's don't what, know. That's what, right, that's what everyone thought. Yeah. No one ever asked me like, did you just upload that? To, not a single person ever asked me that. And and I'm not embarrassed by it because, it, oh, here's another thing I did last year during the pandemic. I, I, I might have, forgive me if I repeat my stories. I'm like reading the newspaper twice. But uh, one time in July, uh, things were starting to reopen but most of the country had not reopened yet. So I noticed that the top 10 movies each weekend, instead of like number 10 being still doing $50 million at the box office, number 10 would have done like $3,000 at the box office. And so we released the first two episodes of my series in a movie theater. So there was one weekend in July where I was in the top 10 movies in the country because we wow. did that. Wow. So, I mean, what a way to sort of game the system and, and do it your own way, which, but, but no one knows everyone yeah. who's watching would have no idea. No clue. Yeah, right. And it's not like, it's not even like I was, I'm afraid to admit it. It's just, that's what I did. And I'm yeah. proud that I, that I, that I had a way to, you know, increase the exposure without being chosen. 
by a movie company to be in this movie theater. I worked out a deal with the movie company. They, they were lacking product anyway, because no, no movies were being produced. And so everybody, it was win-win for everybody. So it was, it was good. And then I, and then I marketed it to my email list and we actually did like, you know, not substantial revenues of the box office, but enough to be like number four in the country so, that, that weekend. So, I mean, I think there was one Disney movie that was released and then everything else was just, you know, small little indie things, including mine. That's and awesome. So, yeah. So, um, so let's see. So, okay. You, you, you worked on, um, uh, 10 ideas for execution. I saw you using uh, ghost, which, uh, uh, I haven't looked at, I, I've, I've, I looked a lot at Substack, uh, but I hear ghost is just as good Is it, it, did you find it very easy to set up? Yeah, I liked it because it it looks more like a blog and it goes out as a newsletter. You can you can have um, members and then you can show like a free preview. I, I liked it. I thought it was pretty easy to use. I found a theme I would purchase for, for $60 if I end up really going through with it. But I just played around with it, built my first newsletter within probably an hour. Yeah, and even your first newsletter here, um, um, I, I read it and, and it's like what the experts have to say in a 2018 study of 152 women, 12% reported feeling depressed after they tied the knot. That's a great hook. I want to read more. And yeah. you have a good picture here, like a, a happy balloon that's all crumpled up and you have specific quotes. I would maybe always try to think of at least one personal story or interaction. I mean, you do, right? When you you have the one about the putting the clothes over your head, but that's that's to exemplify you know, what you were going through. And a lot of people could relate to that. But I would maybe do a full story, like just ultimately what was the conclusion of this day of frustration you had and stuff like that. I, did you see the end? Because at the end, so I set it up where I ended it with the end of my personal uh, story. Yeah, right. I see. Yeah, totally. So that's good. So I, then, I, think, yeah. I think this is a great way. I, I think this is perfect. And this is a per and probably this is a topic. I mean, if 20,000 people are in the, like if there are 20,000 wedding planners, just think about how many millions of people are dealing with all of these issues. I was wondering what you thought about the payment of it, because do you think I should keep some free, then have some that, you know, some that people can subscribe to? I think that's sort of where I got held up was, will people pay for this? Maybe, but I think they're going to need to see some for free first, right? I think you should be free for as long as possible. And because you don't know yet, you don't know yet what your business is. So a lot of times people think newsletter goes to readers. So that means the readers are the customers and they should pay. Now, readers are the consumers of the content, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're the customers. So when I use Google, I am a consumer of Google. I use, I'm a user of Google, but Google has never once asked me to pay. Instead, the actual, instead it turns out, you know, what business is Google in? They're not in the search engine business. They're in the advertising business. Their customers are ad agencies and companies like Procter & Gamble that, that pay huge amounts of money for advertising and also small businesses that never had an opportunity to advertise broadly before. Those are their actual customers. So you don't know yet, you know who your users are likely to be, but you don't know yet who your customers are. And so as you get more and more users, you're going to start to find out who your customers are. So there's a, a, a guy who's been on this podcast a bunch of times, Joe Pompliano, who has a newsletter about the intersection between sports and finance. 
the first time I spoke to him, which was several months ago, he, he has many more users now. He was he had about thirty thousand readers, and he didn't he doesn't charge anything. It's free, and it's a fascinating newsletter. But he makes his money now because, you know, he has a very targeted audience, and people want to advertise, and and maybe he even gets in. You know, there's other newsletters. There's a guy who writes newsletters about Bitcoin, and he's his newsletter is free also. But now he gets first look at many crypto projects and he gets to invest in them. And that's how he makes money. Yeah. And uh, so you, know, you don't yet know how ultimately maybe so many people will read this uh, newsletter that you'll be you'll go on the speaking circuit or you'll uh, be hired to who knows what. Maybe you'll get the TV show or yeah. or people will advertise, you know, wedding planners will advertise or you set up some kind of Craigslist thing devoted to the wedding industry. Like you just don't know. The key is with the newsletter first is to get your email list as big as possible. Because with with companies like Ghost, you and, and Substack and other places, you get you own the email address. You mm -hmm. that you get that, and that's really important. And I, yeah, I never thought of that because when I was brainstorming ways to make money from this, I guess sort of what you're saying is almost like the users are almost the last people you want to charge. You want to make money maybe in every other way than charging them. Like, do you, are you saying sort of like? as you're building the list, then you can make money off of ads, affiliates, sponsors, like all these other things. And then maybe thinking of products or other things to sell your readers, not, not, not even just making them pay for this. Right. You have no, you, you just have no clue yet what your business actually is until you do it. Like, like, um, there, have you ever used genie, which is like a genealogy social network? I've heard of it, but I've never used it. So, so Genie launched and it lets you fill out your family tree. And then, you know, here's my two parents, here's my siblings, here's my kids. And then when you fill it all out, if the people are still alive, you put in their email addresses, they get an email saying, Hey, James mm -hmm. Aldinger just added you to his family tree. Do you want to add more or do you want to check it out? So within a week of launching Genie had a hundred million users and they, they grew really fast and their employees were all remote. They worked in different parts of the, of the country. And this was in the OOs. So there wasn't, there wasn't things like Slack to communicate and keep track of projects and coming. So they created this, um, uh, collaboration tool called Yammer to help their employees manage all this fast growth. Well, I still don't even know if Genie charges, but Yammer sold to Microsoft for a billion dollars. So, you just have no clue at this point what challenges you're going to have, who your users are, who your actual customers are, what other demands your your or what other uses you're fulfilling. But one thing I do know is is that the number of email addresses you had that have given you permission to email them, each one adds value to your business, whether or not you have revenues yet or not. That's just for sure that email addresses are valuable. And particularly email addresses that have gone the additional step of giving you permission to write to them. That's of huge value. I think my biggest issue is I can get the emails. You know, I have, I have Bridesmaid for Hire has an email list of 30 something thousand people. My Monday email list, a ton of people, but I've done nothing to make money off of those existing lists. And I feel like I could grow this, but then my fear is I'm not going to know what to really what to do or when to do it kind of thing. Well, you, that's why we're, that's why we're having these yeah. calls. Like within the, 
you know, within a certain amount of time, sooner rather than later, I want you to be on the path to making a solid million dollars and uh, we'll figure it out. Like, yeah. but, but like I, I wrote for free for many years before I started doing higher end stuff and then charging for it. And by the way, I still write almost everything I write is still for, for free. And then just higher end stuff, which is much rare, much more rare for me. Uh, I charge for it, but mo 98% of the writing I do is, is free still, even though I make a lot of money from my writing as well. So that's, but that, you know, like in, in the newsletter industry, typically you have a free product, then you have a low end. So the free product gets people to give you their email address. The lower end product gets people to give you their credit card number for some reason, like you offer some extra value and it's a low end product. Maybe it's like $40 a year or something like that. And then you really make money on the higher end products because some percentage, like 2% of the people who buy the lower end product will buy the higher end product that might cost thousands a year. So that's the newsletter industry, how the newsletter industry works. But you might not even be in the newsletter industry. You might do the newsletter as part of some other end result. We just don't know the end result yet. We know gotcha. the process and you're at the beginning of the process. We have no clue as to the end result. Uh, and, and there's many, many examples of people starting one business, but realizing later that they're in another business. Like think about, think about taser. So taser is this weapon that when it originally started, people thought it was, uh, non-lethal turns out, you know, I don't, I'm just saying this for legal reasons. I don't know this for sure, but I've been told there are plenty of deaths caused by the use of taser, but initially taser created the entire category of non-lethal weapons. And uh, now what business were they in? Were they in the business of helping police officers, you know, not use excessive force enough to, to kill people? Or were they really in the business of helping cities avoid lawsuits? Mm. You know, they might've been in that business and maybe their best customers initially were the cities that were sued the most. I don't really know the answer to this, but it's, it's, every business is never really in the business they start out in. So that's why it's hard to kind of really think of the business model too early. Now, I understand you want to make money from it quickly. Again, oh, I started telling you about this guy who did this newsletter about sports and finance. He doesn't charge, but he makes enough money that he quit his job as a bond trader at JP Morgan because he suddenly started having people who very much wanted to promote on his newsletter. And so, he, he probably was doing very well at JP Morgan, but he's doing much better now with his newsletter that has 30,000 subscribers. You never know. He didn't know. We won't know until you really start and you have engagement and people are sharing it with their friends. Like I'm not into sports at all, but I was sharing it with my friends when there was something fascinating that I thought they would be interested in. And he got more and more subscribers. Making stuff that you know people want to share is the key. And then you'll figure out what business you're in. I never thought about it like this. I I love I I think it's such an interesting way to think about it. I'm so fast to okay, we're gonna do this, then this, then this. And I like how you're sort of breaking up that thought process too. You know, I used to be a venture capitalist and they always had they had their little PowerPoint and they always had one graph on it that looked like a sort of lopsided smiley face. Like it started off at zero revenues. Oh, and then in five years, if they sell one of these to every other person in China, they're making a trillion dollars. And none of those business plans ever worked in reality. The business either changed along the way or they went out of business or because they tried to uh, wrap a business model around it too quickly. 
or whatever. A friend of mine told me something really interesting the other day, which is that he, he was helping incubate a business that was in the cybersecurity space. And they approached like 50 companies and said, what would you buy if we made it? And there was one particular product that was in common with all of these 50 companies, a, a kind of cybersecurity product that they all said, we will, if you make this product, we will pay for it. So they made that product and zero of those people, they went back to all the companies, zero of them paid for it. Zero of them wanted to buy it because even the customers don't want that, know what they need until you show them. Mm. So it's just something to keep in mind. And uh, they actually just sold that business because they switched business models or I, I don't know if they sold it yet, but they're in the process. So I, I shouldn't say too more, much more about it. But um, uh, I like this list, 10 similar competitors, always good to look at the competition. But I'll tell you one story about this though. So one time I was starting a business that was like a, a website about finance, but I, I hate all finance news. Like I think finance news is all bullshit. So I wanted to make a finance site that was incredibly useful to investors and it had zero news in it. And the details of how I did that, it's not so important, but about three fourths of the way through building this and I had hired some people to, to work for me and program and so on. I don't know why I didn't do my market research, but about three fourths of the way through, I realized I had about five competitors doing the exact same thing. And I got really depressed for about a day. But then I realized, you know what? Um, I know more about this topic than anyone else. Let them compete with me. It sort of shows that there's a market for this. And, you know, Peter Thiel says, always have a monopoly, be the only one. But he doesn't mean being the only one doing a specific type of site. It might mean be the only one in a particular niche doing this or be the best one, you know, be a monopoly because you're the best and have the most information. So for instance, I asked him, well, Facebook wasn't the only social network at the time. And there was MySpace, there was Friendster, there was tribes.net, there was previously GeoCities, which was bought by Yahoo. Um, and he said, no, Facebook was a monopoly. He kept insisting. I'm like, okay, well, how was it a monopoly? And he said, Facebook was the only social network with confirmed identity everyone had to have a valid email address. And when it started, everyone had to have a .edu email address. So, you know, the monopoly could be as niche as possible, but it's still a monopoly. And that's what will happen with you ultimately once, once you get started. You're either going to be the best or you're going to be the most niche down some topic or both or whatever. So we'll see. But yeah. co competition doesn't ever really bother me. Like I'm, I'm making a, uh, doing, Jay and I are doing a company right now where with the help of, of some other people we're programming, like right now you and I were using zoom to talk, yep. but zoom is not that good for podcasts. For one thing, a zoom video is not high enough quality for YouTube. So YouTube will crush it down in the algorithm. And if you get, uh, if you have a bad internet connection, I won't hear you so well, but then the company came out, uh, several companies came out like Squadcast where the audio is recorded on both sides and then stitched together in the cloud, but they weren't doing video. So I figured, okay, let's start a company that not only does this for audio, but does it for video. There's zero competition. Well, now many companies are doing it for video, but I know because I've tried them all, they all don't really work. Like there's, we, we did a video the other day and I won't say the, the company we use, and there was a perfect video moment for it. It would have gotten a million views on YouTube. And we found out at the end that they messed up the video. The video was all, the video was all screwed up. So we know there's either no competition or we're going to be the best once we launch. Like, I don't even care about the competition because I won't release until 
I'm the best and I have something where I'm the only. So that's all you have to think about there. Yeah. And I felt that when I was doing my research, there was a lot of people who had something out there about marriage or first year, but I kept thinking I can do this different. I can do this with my expertise, with my knowledge, with my brand. Like I just kept thinking I could bring something so different and look, it's a topic I didn't invent. I'm not the only one to talk about this topic, but I just think I can come at it differently than these people. And that's what I kept reassuring myself when I made this list. Absolutely. You don't even have to reassure yourself. Like it's definitely yours is going to be unique to you. You're a good writer. You you have a, a interesting and even weird perspective because you've been hired to be a bridesmaid. Like, <laughs> no, I don't know anyone else who does that. So you're going to have a totally unique perspective and you know, you'll, you'll lean into that perspective. Like uh, every newsletter will have your story. So it'll be unique to you. So, okay. 10 ways to market this on my current platform. These are all great ideas. And one thing is, is that as you have more content and more additions out, you're going to be able to be a great guest on many other podcasts because you'll know so many things about weddings and the first year of marriage and problems and divorces and honeymoons and all these things. You'll be invited to be on like tons of podcasts as well. So that's another uh, source of marketing for you. And, um, and you'll, you'll, you'll find other ones as you, as you go along. Um, uh, yeah, 10 ways to scale. I, I like the create a community. You mentioned, uh, using discord, but you can also make a, a four pay Facebook community, kind of like, uh, uh, John Lee Dumas's, uh, podcast paradise, which is for, uh, you know, podcasters, they pay like a thousand dollars and he's very transparent about how much money he makes from it and what he charges. And why would people pay to do that? Well, because when you pay a thousand dollars or whatever he charges, you're sort of saying, Hey, I'm a professional in the space and uh, I'm, I'm willing to pay to hear from other and, and have a community with other professionals. Now you might not have a for pay community. Maybe you have a free community, but then you have advertisers who you allow mm -hmm. to post in the community or, or people who want to promote their services or divorce lawyers who want to promote their services. And that's almost like the, the fun. Maybe you only have divorce lawyers as advertisers and that's kind of the, the fun of it. Um, I'm just making that up. That might be a horrible idea, but, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, some of these creates merchandise. I never really know. I don't, I know everybody does merchandise and even I have merchandise, but I never really know anyone who makes a lot of money from merchandise. Like merchandise is kind of fun. I, I think, oh no, yesterday I was wearing my James Aldertrow show t-shirt and I have my James Aldertrow show mug, which is not here right now. Um, but, uh, nobody, nobody's made a million dollars selling merchandise for their brand, but it's still fun to have. Uh, and so, so all these ways are good. I like the, uh, 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 you know, one way to scale is affiliate deals and promotion in a community. But again, a lot of these, I would keep thinking of these ideas. Like, don't be like, just because you did this idea list, maybe you do it again a month from now, 10 ways to scale. Maybe one way to scale is you sell, you have a newsletter community about newsletters, uh, you know, a Facebook community about newsletters. Like, cause now you'd be, let's say you get up to, you know, hundred thousand subscribers in a certain amount of time. Uh, you have a community for any newsletter writer who has a hundred thousand, uh, subscribers. And that could be a high, a, a for pay community or free or whatever. So, so there's other ways to scale other than just weddings. You're taking other skills that you're learning in this process and you could scale those as well. Yeah. I like this 10 types of people who could be affiliates. 
10 reasons people need this newsletter. This is a great list. Uh, and you'll always be expanding this list and maybe even each one of these. So your first one, 10 reasons people need this letter. Your first one is people who just got married and feel like they have nothing to look forward to. So boom, that's a, a perfect new, uh, single newsletter issue topic. Like do you, you just got married. Do you feel like you have nothing to look forward to? That is a great topic for one of your issues. Um, here's another reason people need this in the newsletter. People who are about to get married and want to know what to expect or plan for. Boom. That could be five issues of your newsletter. It's good to keep writing these lists because these are going to give you ideas for your newsletter. Then I would take each one of these topics and make an idea list for them. So for the first one, people who just got married and feel like they have nothing to look forward to. Well, what are 10 things they can look forward to? Got you. And that becomes well, sometimes when I make a 10 idea list, that's the outline for an article. Yep. And then I make an article out of it. So pe people who feel alone in their first year of marriage, that's your number 10 item here about the people who need uh, this newsletter. Well, you could talk about your own experiences, maybe of the ways you felt alone. And then you could tell stories of other people. And then you have, but here's the, the 10 people, or here's the 10 reasons you're not alone. Like here's ways you could reach out to different people and still maintain this great relationship with your husband or wife or whatever. So I think this is all really great. This is like unbelievable stuff you've done in the past, in the, just the past week. So you have 10 questions for James. Uh, the first five are, should it be more than just the first year? I think we answered that, that yes, it should be, you know, you could focus at first on that if you want, but it, it should just be about all topics in marriage. Because by the way, topics in your 30th year, also occur in the first year. Yeah. Like maybe in the 30th year, intimacy slows down, you know, but that can also happen in the first year. Or, you know, let's say, should you do a post-nup or a prenup? That's a first year question or a 10th year question. Yeah. No, I know, I know we answered like most of these questions, but something that occurred to me is, should I just start it with, I think my problem is I always do too much at the start. Do you think I should start it with just a newsletter? Should I build a website for it? Should I build social media channels for it? Or am I just starting this with just a newsletter? Just a newsletter. And like when I first started an email list, which is like 2012, I think it was Ramit Seti who advised, he said, trust me, build an email list. Okay. And I didn't think so at first, but then eventually I did it. And I didn't have a special, I just had my social media. I didn't have a special social media account. My website really didn't get that much traffic. It was more when I published on other sites that were popular that I got traffic. And, but I always asked people in my articles at the time that I was writing for other places, Hey, sign up for my email list. And now there's places like Substack or ghost or MailChimp or whatever, where people could sign up. So you don't really need your own website to get them to sign up and you don't need your own software to have a newsletter. So you don't really need anything special and just your, your own Twitter, always include your Twitter and Instagram and all that. Um, should people start with one newsletter when they start? Uh, you mean like one issue? Well, I was thinking if it's just, this is irrelevant now, but if it's just the first year of marriage, should they start it at, at issue one or can they dive in at any time? So I think we solved pretty much all of these questions just talking through everything today, yeah. which was so helpful. Yeah. And like maybe at launch time, you have three in the can. So when they sign up, they can, before they sign up, they can read some prior issues. So that's the only thing I would, I would add to that. Uh, so, uh, yeah. How do I make sure I don't go overboard and offer too much? Just don't offer anything other than your 
extremely valuable content that's cool. that they could read about in the newsletter. You know, we could talk about this next time. The the maid of honor speech business. This one was more filling out, fleshing out the newsletter idea. So maybe next time, well, let's talk about this maid of honor. Let's talk about the other business ideas. But yeah. um, what do you think are the next steps now in the newsletter? You, you've done one, and I think you, you probably need a template for it. Yeah, I think I need a template. I think I need to, I just threw that one together really quickly. So maybe build out three newsletters just to have them. And I'm, I'm ready to go through my list of ways I was going to market it to my current audience and see if I can put it out there and, and see if people sign up. I mean, do yeah. you think it's too soon to do that? No. Okay. Yeah. And then you know what you do? Like start answering more questions on Quora, but like a lot of content and it right. Maybe to even more than once in the answer, you could have in brackets Hey, if you like this answer, sign up for my newsletter. You know, okay. you could test that out to see if it's annoying to people or if it works or whatever. You know, maybe some do that, some not do that, but just test it out. Or if you write any other place like LinkedIn or Medium, you know, you could always um, direct people to your newsletter. That's probably like the best marketing of all, really. Yeah. People, because people, then you're hitting the audience of people who are reading about marriage and that's your audience, as opposed to going on a podcast or as opposed to going on TV your actual audience are, is an audience of readers. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's your best, your, 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 your best marketing is going to be to hit other readers and really the best marketing is word of mouth. So just, you just make sure every issue has some reason why people would want to share. I know I just wrote down, maybe I can make a list of 10 ways I'm going to work on getting people to sign up and just go through all those ways. One of them could be running really cheap Facebook ads to see if people are clicking on certain things, Quora, using my email list, using my podcast. Just, I think I can go through some ways of 10 experiments and see what worked. Yeah. Like you could, um, um, make a Facebook ad and just put like, again, a $20 budget around it. Uh, do you need a prenup or a postnup before you get married? And See if people click on that and it goes to your newsletter of yeah. all the issues that people could possibly want to know on, you know, their first year of marriage. And, you know, and if that one gets clicks, that's great. Or you could try another title and, you know, I wouldn't spend too much money, but try experimenting with that a little bit. Who knows? Jay, do you know what's the, what are the, what are the, what's the cheapest place to advertise right now? I know people who know, I don't know if Jay knows, but maybe Jay knows. Uh, I don't know. I thought, I thought it's Facebook is probably the cheapest because you can put, where whatever however much money you want to right yeah you can put ten dollars or twenty dollars yeah and you could find there are sites where you could target that it helps you figure out the targeting like maybe the type of people who target weddings also target magnolias because i don't know maybe that's the kind of flower people use at weddings so so there might be cheaper targeting words that have a correlation with what your topic is and there are websites that help figure that out yeah um so I would have to research a little to find out where they are, but uh, that's useful. And then you also want to keep track of your analytics if you can. Like, I don't know how much analytics Ghost or Substack has, but you want to see where, which ads are working, you know, uh, and I wonder how you can, you want to make sure you can track that or at least do some tracking of that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I think, I think by next week, you should basically have your template, three issues in the can, Keep working on idealists. Maybe make idealists for some of these taglines and make them turn them into issues. By the way, it doesn't have to be a thousand and one problems. Your first year could be eleven problems, but you know that's still interesting. Or here's a good one: ten things your friends need to know about your wedding. 
And then the people getting married are going to send it to all their friends. Mm, I so, like that. Yeah. So stuff like that's good too. Uh, you know, if I wrote an article, 10 things every or 101 things every entrepreneur needs to know or 101 mistakes every entrepreneur makes, well, everybody who wasn't an entrepreneur sent it to their entrepreneur friends. If I wrote an article, 10 reasons you shouldn't send your kids to college, every, you know, everybody would send it to their uh, kids or, you know, because they didn't want to pay for all that tuition or everyone would send it to their friends who were thinking of not going to college, you know, to give them encouragement. So right. there's always a reason. I'm always thinking of a reason why someone would want to share something. And really my worst performing articles are where I can't really make that leap. Like I can't figure out why someone would want to share this. And it's still, those are sometimes my best writing because I don't have any ulterior things going on, but they don't get as many views. And I wrote that in all caps. Always think of reasons people will want to share it. Cause you're right. If I give them that reason, then they're going to take that action. If not, I'm just hoping they like me enough to want to do that. Yeah. You know, and again, like there's multiple angles. Some people will like a crazy story. Some people will like your style of writing. Some people will like one specific quote. Some people will like facts. Some people will like solutions. Yes. Throw all of them into every issue. I like that. Awesome. And that's the way really that you offer too much, but then that's great. If you offer more quality content than all the others in the wedding or marriage newsletter industry, then that's, you know, your uniqueness. You know, I, whenever I've seen some wedding website or story, it's just like really boring articles. Again, they could have been sentences. Yep. Like what flowers should you have at your wedding? And they might have all this stuff about different flowers and histories. I just need one sentence. These are the flowers. But if you really have an interesting topic, it'll be bigger than a sentence. I mean, again, each topic should be that you could fill a book with it, but you're condensing it into an article. It's like, have you ever looked up a recipe and you have to scroll through all of the information just to get to the recipe? That's like my pet peeve is recipe writers will put like a thousand words of a story and then bury the recipe at the end. And it drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, and, and, you know, in, in restaurants, they do that too. And I bet you there's some scientific reason for doing that, but often, you know, you'll order something and then, uh, the waiter or waitress will come over and says, yes, we got this from, you know, fresh, fresh from the waters of this river and uh, the, the arrangement around it comes from, is well known for this chef and blah, blah, blah. And I don't really want to know all that stuff. Right. right. I just want to order the food or I want to find the recipe. But I, I bet you though, those waiters and waitresses get higher tips. I don't know that for sure, but I bet if I did research on that, I would find that those waiters on average get a higher tip. So you have to test lots of different ideas and things to see what works. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited to subscribe to your newsletter and check out more of your questions on Quora. And then we can also talk about some of these other business ideas or maybe other ways to scale. Cool. Awesome. I'm so excited. This has lit such a fire underneath me and I've, I haven't been this excited in a while. So thank you for pushing me. And I love doing all this work. I feel like it's just been so great. So thank you. I think the key thing is the latter part. What you said is that you're doing the work. I'm doing nothing. <laughs> Every single day on my Twitter account, follow me at Jay Altucher. I'm doing the adult improvement tip of the day. As an adult, I've become a chess master. 
professional stand-up comedian, a computer programmer, an investor, a hedge fund manager, an entrepreneur. In some cases, I've mastered some of these new fields. It's no good to just do something mindlessly over and over and over again and not get better. You get happier when you improve. New research shows that adults can improve just as easily as kids or almost as easily. I've written books about adult improvement. I have new ideas that beat out the 10,000 hour rule. And I'm doing a whole thread every single day, one tip a day for the next 100 days, adult improvement tip of the day. Find me on Twitter at Jay Altucher.